We have the call to worship. Behold, bless ye the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, which by night stand in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. The Lord that made heaven and earth, bless thee out of Zion. Let's bow our hearts and heads in sign of preparation for worship. Let us stand and sing 181, 181. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this evening as we are gathered here by your grace and mercy, Lord, and your special providence in giving us the freedom to worship, may our hearts continue to rest in you, Lord. May we be continued to, continually drawn unto you by your grace and mercy of long-suffering bestowed upon us through the covenant of grace, we ask. This evening, Lord, give us more strength, we pray, to continue and to be encouraged this week to carry on day by day. In your name alone we pray, amen. You may be seated. 
M420. Thank you. 
with us, God above. Be with us in your mercy and your grace upon us. We ask God this evening as we come before you with our concerns and praises, Lord. Praising you for our good health. Praising you, Lord, for access to doctors and good food and um, the clean water that we have, Lord. Many places in the world struggle with these things. Nevertheless, God, we continue to ask that we would have access to these things, we would not lose them, that, Lord, we would be able to take care of our body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that we would do what we need for exercise and diets or whatever else, Lord, that uh, we have to take care of ourselves. All of us are a little different, and we have the freedom and access, more often than not, to, to such things as we need to take care of our body, Lord. We ask for good sleep and a good shelter, Lord, and the like that we need throughout the week. And thank you, thankful God for what we do have. We pray for not only the health of our body, but the health of our soul, that we would continue to persevere in the means of grace that you bestowed upon us, God, to read your word, to pray, to be with the saints, God, to come to worship, to hear your word praised and prayer lifted up for the saints, to have the sacraments and to have the preaching of the word of God, both a law and a gospel, for our direction in life. We praise you, God, for these things that you've given us. We praise you, Lord, for the church here at Providence and the fellowship and the love that we have, for the fruit of the Spirit, Lord, in our lives, both individually and collectively, that we would continue to exercise thus, to have patience and long-suffering and joy in the Spirit as we continue to meditate upon, not only on this day, but uh, as we're able throughout the week to meditate upon the gospel promises, the joy that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. We ask, Lord, that you'd be not only with our church and her growth and submission to your will, but also, God, for our presbytery, that you would be with our various sister churches throughout Colorado and Wyoming and the Dakotas and Utah, that they too would grow numerically and spiritually, that they too would grow in the knowledge and uh, sanctification of the Holy Ghost, we pray, that they too, Lord, would be more like Jesus, that you'd protect them from the evil one, that you'd help not only the churches individually, but collectively as they gather with their leadership for Presbyterian meetings twice a year and the standing committees between the meetings, that they would do their duty before you and take care of the task at hand to have wisdom therein. Uh, and uh, we pray, Lord, for our unity in, in our Presbytery, unity based upon truth, unity based upon a proper understanding of what it means to be a Presbytery and the commitment that we have made to one another as churches and as officers. Help us, Lord, we pray, to grow thereby, not just our presbytery, but all the other presbyteries of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. That they, too, would be faithful to your word, that they, too, would protect their flock, that they, too, would have their committee and the committee members, Lord, do their task and duty conscientiously before you, Lord, and work as unto the Lord. Protect them, we pray, and protect their churches. We also ask God, not only for our presbyteries, but for our sister denominations, those that are part of what we call NAPARC and the relationship that we have with them, that they too would be faithful to your word, that they would stand in the day and age of darkness and strong temptation to fall away from the truth and to water it down, perhaps, and uh, whatever the case may be, Lord, that they too would be purified by your word and in your providence, God, that you would watch over them, protect them, and help them, we pray. Help us, God, to persevere throughout the week in our callings and vocations in life and our families as singles and couples as well, God, and our responsibilities to one another and to our boss and to our church and, above all, to our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. May we be encouraged this evening, God, and admonished, or whatever the case may be, through the preaching of your word, Lord, and equipped always in these cases to do the work of the kingdom, we pray, for your glorious name's sake. 
and for the expansion of the kingdom. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. rise praise God from whom all blessings flow praise him all creatures here below praise him above the heavenly host praise Father Son and Holy Amen. We ask again, Lord, by your mercy's sake, and thankful for the opportunity for giving of these tithes and offerings, that they would be multiplied and used mightily for your kingdom's sake. Amen. You may be seated. Let us turn to our Bibles to Psalm 33. I haven't calculated it, but uh, I should figure out how long it takes to go through 150 psalms, uh, one psalm a month, 150 months. Psalm 33, let us listen attentively to the word of God. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is right. And all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven, and he sees all the sons of men. In the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall deliver any by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death, to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. Our help, he is our help and our shield, for our heart shall rejoice in him, because we have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, 
be upon us just as we hope in you. Let us pray. With these words of admonition and praise God, may our hearts move accordingly. We ask, Lord Jesus, that we would continue to rejoice and fear you as we wait upon you for the fullness of salvation when Christ Jesus shall return. In your name we pray. Amen. The Psalms, as we know, express a range of human emotions, and uh, often some of those ranges of emotion are focused or highlighted in some Psalms more than others. The Psalms express even commands here in particular three different reactions that we are called to do before Almighty God, and that is to rejoice, to fear, and to wait. And it's an interesting trio, of course, as it reminds us how, how complex we are as God has created us, that we can experience multiple things, emotions, reactions to things that even seem contradictory. We're called to rejoice even as we are called to fear, for one obvious example. So let's look carefully at 1 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord. We have here in the opening verses the, the what. What is going on here? What is this rejoicing? The whom? To whom should we rejoice? Who is the one rejoicing? And how we are to rejoice, all wrapped up in these first few verses. Rejoicing here, of course, is the idea of being happy, not necessarily emotional about it. We perhaps think of the word rejoicing or happy as something that a little kid does. He just bursts out spontaneously with emotion. Not necessarily that, but a deep-seated reality that God has saved us, that he is our God, that he is delivering us even right now. And that is not a sad thing. It's quite the opposite. It's something that should be joyous. We are happy that our God is our God and he. We are his people. And that he is a God of goodness, in fact. And he gives reasons then. Um, we're supposed to praise for the upright. Uh, the praise from the upright is beautiful. He gives some reason here. But he unpacks more reasons in verse 4 and following. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He loves justice. He's, the earth is full of goodness. And the word of the Lord who has made all things. These are reasons why, as well, that we should rejoice in our creator. Rejoice in the covenant-keeping God. For that is to whom we are to rejoice and to be happy in, that he is our Lord, right? It's all caps there in the English, L-O-R-D, covenant-keeping God. In the midst of our daily struggles, brothers and sisters, we have to remember that he has made a promise to us, the form of a covenant, and he shall not break it. He has sworn to Abraham and sworn to us, and he can swear by no one higher than himself, as Hebrew reminds us. He will finish the good work that has begun in us. And thus we can rejoice even now in the midst of sorrows and difficulties. It is whom we are rejoicing before and to whom is the Lord our God. But here I want to spend a little time on something that's perhaps not always obvious to us. Who should rejoice? Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. Maybe thinking, must be talking to the Christian behind me, because I don't feel righteous. And I can appreciate that. And yet he is speaking to you and to anyone else who is a member of God's covenant. Oh, you righteous. How can they be righteous? Who are the righteous? 
Who can say they are righteous? But we read prior in Psalm 32, what? Let's go back one chapter. And it says in verse 1 of Psalm 32, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man in whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. What do you call that man? Righteous. Not in and of himself, obviously. Because here, the negative is expressed that sin is not imputed to him, right? That judicial declarative language. And Paul picks that up over there in Romans 4. And he gives you the other side of the coin. If it's true that God has not imputed sin, what must also be true because God's law, God himself abhors abhors a moral vacuum. It's not just that he says you're sins are not imputed to you, but that Christ's righteousness is imputed to you by faith alone. Paul gets that doctrine from Psalm 32. And the negative implies the positive. From the Old Testament. And so righteous, then, here in Psalm 32, is certainly those who are justified by Christ Jesus, whose righteousness is imputed to them by faith alone. No, 32. My wife's like, don't you mean 33? No, 32. That's clearly what he's saying at 32. The question is, does 33, when he says righteous, is he referring to the justification? The fact that they are justified? Or sanctification? I don't have a ready answer for that. Um, and that's why I think it could be either one. Uh, interesting, of course, in the Old Testament, often a lot of things... The categories are there, obviously, because he talks about imputation there in Psalm 32, but the language often is just this righteous, upright, the saints, whatever word you use. I'm not making those distinctions, because they're not relevant in one sense. You who are members of the covenant of grace, the fact that it's a covenant of grace means whatever righteousness you have in your sanctification, because you do have it in your sanctification, Hebrews 10.6, God is not unjust to reward you for your good works to put it in paraphrasical form. But he says unjust. He's not unjust. He will reward his people because the relationship has changed inside the covenant based on grace. So even our works, as mangled as they are in our heads, if given out of a heart of faith, God receives them. Not to justify us. We're already justified by Christ. Because he's pleased in our sanctification to reward us more with more grace and more sanctification, even with weak works, to reward us in that sense. So from that perspective, it doesn't really matter here, because they go hand in hand. He who is justified is sanctified. He who is sanctified is justified. And yes, it's proper and important to know the distinction between the righteousness of one, which is the imputed righteousness of Christ, He is obviously perfect in thought, word, and deed. We are never are, even in our best sanctification. And our sanctification, however, has a real righteousness to it. We are called saints in the New Testament, are we not? It's another word for saints. Holy ones. I've been preaching on holiness in the New Testament, uh, in the the morning, through the Old Testament in Leviticus. You can translate that word holy ones in the New Testament. Because they are holy. They are holy by virtue of baptism, to be sure. They're holy by their practice as well, although that's very inconsistent. That kind of you know, goes back and forth. That's what people struggle with in their, in their Christian walk. And also their confession. 
So not just the act of baptism, not just your life, you go to church, you read your Bible, you try to avoid sin as best you can, of course you stumble and you sin. But your confession as well, that you declare the baptism, that you declare Christ Jesus, you declare that you are a believer. So, these things that God is pleased to work in us, and so thus he calls us righteous. It's all of us, brothers and sisters. Now, he says in verses 2 and 3, ways in which they should rejoice before the Lord our God, ways in which we know uh, are natural to the human condition, which is with your mouth, and mouth in harmony, if you can harmonize, and to sing, and to use here um, ten-stringed instruments and the like. And as we know, David himself excelled in these things as God had gifted him uh, with the harp in giving of these psalms. And why should they rejoice? I mentioned this before a little bit, verses 4 through 6, because of our God. For, it says in verse 4, for the, Lord, for the word of the Lord is right. And he continues on to explain these things. Because God is right, verse 4, his word is right and truth. The word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. So obviously there, you see the synonymous parallelism, as I told you before. They're saying the same thing differently in those two uh, sticks or stanzas. He loves righteousness and justice, verse 5. And the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord, is another reason why we should rejoice before God. Not only is he right and has all truth, but that he is a good God. And the earth is full of that goodness, and that goodness is paralleled with righteousness and justice. Although we don't see the fullness of that righteousness and justice, we know and have experienced it to some extent, and it shall have its fullness when Christ Jesus returns. But even now we see the goodness of God, in giving rain to the just and the unjust, for different reasons, to be sure. But he, had to do, he did not have to do any such thing, yet he did. And not only should we rejoice because he is right and true and good and just, but because he created all things and directs all things. Verse 6 and 7. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. And so there he gives a final reason why we should rejoice, because he's the creator of heaven and earth. And by implication, of course, it's not just he's the creator of heaven and earth, although that is sufficient to rejoice, but that he is our creator and our Lord. Right? That's the covenant idea there, to rejoice in the covenant-keeping God, that he has brought us in a special relationship with him, not just a relationship of creation that is simply being created Adam and Eve were already in a relationship with God, but he added upon that, or superadded, the covenant of works and then the covenant of grace for a special relationship. And thus, we stand in awe of who he is because we see evidence of who he is throughout all creation. Verses 8 and following to 19 we're not only supposed to rejoice in the Lord, we're supposed to fear the Lord. So you see, I think, a, a change here in uh, theme. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. So here the fear of the Lord is highlighted. And reasons are given why we should fear the Lord. It's a command as well. It's not a suggestion, although it's written that way. Let all the earth a way of saying that in the grammar there. But obviously, 
The intent is not suggestive. Well, if you feel like it, maybe, maybe not. No, it's a command. It's a moral imperative. The whole world is supposed to do this, not just us, to fear God Almighty. And I want to point out, of course, that we have fear and rejoicing in the same psalm. Do we not fear our earthly fathers? And yet we rejoice when they rejoice, when they do good things for us and our family. Help us in our time of need. Yeah, you can do both. It's not hard. Both can exist, that is, fear and rejoicing, at different times and different circumstances and for different objects, different reasons. You do not rejoice in the abstract, but you rejoice for a reason. You do not fear in the abstract, but you fear for a reason. And that reason here are the reasons he gives in verses 9 through uh, the remaining of the verses 19. As I said before, it's a command, and there's a parallel there. Look at verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. I hope you see again, he's saying the same thing twice, differently. So it's, it's poetic in a Hebraic sense that way, and beautiful in its own way. I, I like this way of doing things. The English way of rhyme is very childish to me, <laughs> uh, probably because you have so many of those kids' rhymes that mean nothing. It's gibberish. And I know music, good music songs have good rhyme that does mean something. It's not just gibberish because it happens to rhyme. But this is a rhythm of ideas is how the Hebrews do it. And so I want to point that out again so to help you read the Psalms and see he's not saying something different. To fear God also means to stand in awe of him. <laughs> so the reasons, what are the reasons? First reason is that God speaks, verses 9 through 12. God speaks, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. And the second reason is verse 13 and following. The Lord looks from heaven, he sees the sons of men, and he highlights the fact that God is all-knowing. So here, God's power is highlighted, for he spoke in verse 9, it was done. It shall come to pass. God's fiat power is what we call it. We talk about fiat money, he just printed out, brr, 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 there's a meme about that, out comes the money. But for God, it's not a meme, it's not a game. Fiat, in that case, means by his divine initiative. He says it, and it's so. The government can say it and make it so money, but the problem is they can't control the value of it. Because the more money you make, the more it's worth less. Because part of value is preciousness or rarity. <laughs> so the government thinks it's doing fiat, but it's kind of not. The way God does fiat is real. And everlasting. He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. It shall not move. His word and his promises, his power and creation in particular here, as the omnipotent creator, shall stand. He is the one who speaks and things come out of nothing. That's fiat's power. He created all things around us, the brilliant sun, the majestic moon, the glorious stars above, and the wonderful creatures, great and small. God created them all and sustains them all. The council of the nations, we read, verse 10, come to nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. Instead, verse 11, the council of the Lord stands forever. Politicians and great brainiacs and think tanks and leaders and people of power and influence have plans. They try to implement them. Like we heard Going through Proverbs 14, the best laid plans of mice and men. And uh, there in Proverbs, excuse me, 16. 
Uh, we're told very clearly that man prepares the things in his heart to plan to speak, but God directs his steps. God directs the steps of nations, let alone individuals. And so here's giving a contrast here. We should fear God because this is the God with whom we have to deal with. Nations cannot stand before him. Their plans go to, on, they fall on their face. They plop, there you go. It's the end of it. They stumble around. They can, nothing, they can do nothing without the power of God Almighty. And then he says in verse 12, Blessed is the man whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. He's clearly talking about Israel there. They have a special relationship with God. God gave them a special promise of the land that America does not have. And yet the idea behind this is still true, that a nation who follows the Lord is indeed blessed, even if they're not given a special blessing for the land that they're on, like Israel was. And we're seeing it, of course, in our generation that we rather have a godly nation, at least outwardly godly, than outwardly, overtly pagan, as, as we are seeing in real time. But I want, you know, I don't, want, I don't like hypocrites. That's true. I don't like hypocrites either, but I'd rather have hypocrites than the ones who aren't hypocrites coming after me and my family. Because <laughs> they have enough restraint. They're fearful. And they're hiding things. Good. But I'd rather have them repent, of course. Second reason to fear the Lord Almighty above, not only because he directs and he gives counsel and things stand fast, when he speaks, it will happen. Nothing can stop it. The nations cannot hold him back. The Lord looks from heaven. Here's his, the imagery of his omniscience, not just omnipotence, but omniscience. He has all knowledge and sees all and knows all. He sees all the men and all the people on the earth and that have been or ever shall be. The Lord looks from heaven, he sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwellings, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. And he considers all their works. He sees them. The idea, of course, isn't, well, that's kind of interesting. I see all these ants down there. But he weighs and considers their works. He's a God, he's a judge who understands that what men do or don't do are wicked or righteous acts. And so it's an implication of he weighs their works in the balance. He considers all their works. He will judge, brothers and sisters. God sees and knows all. You cannot hide from him. Your thoughts are beyond me. This is not a Marvel cartoon or something in which you can read someone's thoughts. God knows your thoughts. And that's comforting for the Christian. It's fearful in the sense of, well, I better control myself because I don't want to have wicked thoughts. God's going to hear them. He will. He knows them. And then we have here a contrast to the limits of men is how I see this. Verses 16 to 17. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is vain hope for safety. I mean, you read this and you're like, well, that's not true. I mean, it would be great to have a horse if I was fighting my enemy. He had no horses. I can just run him over. Obviously here it's a you know, a parenthetical thought, it's half, of, half an idea. The other half of the idea, I think, is this, that these kings, these horsemen, these great and mighty men are useless without God Almighty. Because he's our help, verses 18 and 19. He delivers their soul from death and keeps them alive in famine. It is God. It is not kings as themselves, mighty men as themselves, horses uh, of themselves that have any power or might, right? We talked about this in Proverbs 16, how the doctrine of providence, 
You can't do anything without breathing. It's got to breathe. You can't do anything without God. So although you are doing something, even though you're breathing, you don't praise breathing, but you ought to praise God, of course. Praise God for your breath. <laughs> and they can do nothing. It's a echoing, I think, of the idea elsewhere in the Psalms that the watchman watches in vain unless the Lord is watching as well. Unless God is there to deliver you, the king cannot deliver, a horse cannot deliver, a mighty man cannot deliver. It's ineffectual. God is effectual. God brings about what he says he will bring about. So God watches over his saints, verse 18. So you have the eye of the Lord, uh, clearly, uh, it seems to me, uh, carrying on the idea of verse 13. The Lord looks from heaven, right? That metaphor, God doesn't have an eye, of course. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. He sees all the inhabitants. He sees how impotent they are without his might and power, verses 16 and 17. And then he focuses in and says, God looks especially upon his people. He watches over you, brothers and sisters. He watches you on those who hope in his mercy. And he will deliver your soul from death and keep you from the famine of your soul. God sees all things, but he's not an impersonal Lord. But he watches and sees you in particular. And the unspoken thing there, of course, he guides you in all things. And it says he will ultimately deliver your soul from death. Even now, through Christ Jesus our Lord. Our soul waits for the, excuse me, verse 18, the Lord is on, his eyes on the, those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy. Those go together, not as though fear is a synonym for hope. So this would be um, a, uh, what was it called? There's another name for it. There's antithetical synonyms. There's the synonyms. There's another one where they expand on an idea or they're, parallel, they're, they're related, coordinated ideas. Obviously, the idea here is coordinated. Fear and hope are coordinated. They're in the same person. You can have fear before God. You can have hope in God, is my point. Verse, uh, excuse me, the last, the third point, verses 20 through 22. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. You're supposed to rejoice. You're supposed to fear the Lord. And we have no choice but to wait. <laughs> our soul waits. We have no choice. We have to wait. It's not being able to do anything about your situation. So what do you do but wait? It's not abstaining from work. Waiting doesn't mean sitting on your hands. Taking care of your family, you got to do. You got to go to work, but waiting for the full resolution of the valley of the tears that we find ourselves in. We cannot progress time any quicker. And why should we wait? Because He is our help and our shield, and we can do nothing without Him anyway. We can do nothing to change this life, but God can, and indeed has at times, directed things in a different direction than we realized and surprised us in his providence. And so we wait, even as we are busy about doing the work of God's kingdom. And we are called again to rejoice, for our hearts shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. And there he expresses what he said at the beginning of the psalm, that we should rejoice 
O righteous ones, you who are righteous in Christ Jesus, you who are being purified and becoming holy by the Spirit's power and might. And after this call of fear, which takes up a large portion of the psalm, it seems to me, and the reasons therein, it goes back to rejoicing. Even as our soul waits for the full deliverance of heaven and earth, we rejoice based upon the trust that we have right now because we have trusted in his holy name. Verse 21, for our hearts shall rejoice because we have trusted in his holy name. There's another reason to rejoice. Because we rely upon him and believe that his promises are true and God is good. The trust and hope are, are there in these verses, intermingled because it's part of the Christian life. He's not giving us a theological treatise, of course, but we see in verses 21 and 22, because we have trusted in his holy name, let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. The hope and the trust are there in the Old Testament. The saints of old did not trust in their works. They did not trust in their sacrifices in the priesthood. They trusted in God Almighty and the Messiah to come. And that was their hope. Even as they feared the Lord God Almighty. Without faith and trust in Him, it is impossible to please Him. Trust, in contrast to hope, is the present reality of our hearts, that is, the present response of believing in God. Hope is the future orientation of that trust and faith. As we say, we hope against hope. We pray for help because we look forward to the future, that God will indeed bring some deliverance, if not now, that is in the immediate future, certainly when Christ Jesus shall return. And he has a prayer there, verse 22, let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us. He's talking to God, therefore he's praying to God, just as we hope in you. We pray for more mercy, for more continued mercy, for more new mercies every morning, even as we wait for the fullness of grace in Christ's second coming. Our souls wait upon him, even as we cry out to him. In this psalm, brothers and sisters, a number of things are called upon us to rejoice, to fear, and to wait, all in the context of already trusting in him and hoping for his return and the change of where we are in this valley of tears. Let us meditate upon the call of this psalm, to call the call to rejoice in God's creation and his power and his might and his knowledge of all things. The call to fear our great Father above all and the trust in him. The call to wait even as we struggle in the hardships of this life. Let us pray. Gracious God above, we're thankful for this beautiful psalm, as all the psalms are beautiful in their own way, as they express and point and direct us to different things of the Christian life. And here we are called to rejoice, to fear, and to wait. Help us, Lord, to continue to pray for your mercies upon us, that we would do just those things. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing Psalm 33. Yeah, now this one goes. <laughs> it does go to the next page. Uh, I guess one through three.
it was of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the saints of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.